Well, it's, uh, it's good to see you this morning. It's good to be back. I uh, appreciate it. I took the month of February off, and the guys did a great job. If you're a guest for the first time, either here online or you just started coming the last few weeks, uh, I'm David, and uh, I'm the closest thing we have to a senior pastor here that you're going to find, so I'm it. And uh, we're just glad you're here worshiping with us. Once you know, you're always, always, always welcome uh, to our church and what we have going on and the things that pertain to you. In 1986, there was a book written by John R. W. Stott. The book is entitled The Cross of Christ. That book is the single most influential book in my life. It changed the way a 25-year-old pastor thought about ministry. It has never ceased to be the most influential book that I've ever read. Stott is for a whole generation of pastors, that group of pastors, that generation who are in their 30s and 40s. Uh, 15 years ago, we were in our 30s and 40s. For us, he is the most influential person, the, the theologian, scholar. He, he really, he was just a pastor is what he was. He pastored also his church in England. But he was really the leader of the evangelical movement for so long. It wasn't Billy Graham. I mean, Billy Graham's a great evangelist, but he was not the leader of the movement of scholars, of pastors, of, of ministers. It was Stott in 2005. Stott was proclaimed by Time Magazine, one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And Stott wrote this book called The Cross of Christ. In that book, he kind of begins it with, with this quote. He said, and I find this amazing. He said, I myself would not believe in God if it were not for the cross. The cross is everything in the Christian faith. In this series, and, and this sermon, and this book inspired the title of the series. And, and by the way, many sermon series that I have preached and, and messages I have, have given has been inspired by something else. It's, it's a polite way of saying I stole the title and proclaimed it for myself. Because I steal stuff all the time. You don't know what I steal, but I steal a lot of titles. But, you know, the sermons are mine, but the title I've stolen. But here, here's the thing from this entire series that I, that I want you to see. For the follower of Christ, the follower of Christ, everything ultimately comes back to the cross. Everything, everything comes back to the cross. Everything Jesus did was in preparation for it. And everything the early followers did was a result of it. You read the gospels. Everything in the gospels up to the cross was in preparation for that event. Everything that follows it in Acts and all the letters was the result of the cross of Christ. Today, I'm going to begin this series with the centrality of the cross. It is central to who we are, to what we understand. I'm going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 18. Last April, I actually preached a message from verse 18 through verse 25. And, uh, and, and this is one of those passages that I come back to quite often because it's so important to who we are <clears throat> and to what we understand. And verse 18 says this, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to us, who are being saved, it is the power, the power of God. And so as I begin this sermon, and I begin this series, I'm going to ask you one very simple question. How do you, how do you respond to the gospel? We're going to take a little journey this morning to a city of Corinth. The city could aptly be described as Sin City. Because it was one of the most sinful and wicked cities you would find in the world. Someone had said that, that Corinth was a combination of L.A., New York, and Las Vegas. It was the entertainment capital 
of the world. And it, it was the financial capital of the world. And it was the sin and vice capital of the world at that time. In fact, if you wanted to insult someone of low moral quality, you would call them a Corinthian. And that's what that means. You are a person of low moral status. Corinth had been around a long, 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 long time. It's an old city. It actually had ceased to exist for about 100 years. In the mid-2nd uh, century B.C., it was destroyed, but Julius Caesar brought it back. And he brought it back because it was a strategically important location. He filled it with Romans and slaves and freed slaves. Jews would come over to be a part of that city. But it's located on a narrow, narrow, narrow strip of land. It's about three miles wide. On the eastern side of Corinth is the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea would connect you to Asia to the Middle East, to Africa, and all the riches they had. On the western side of Corinth was the Ionian Sea. It would connect you to the seat of power, Rome, to Spain, to other places. And because it was dangerous to sail around the, the little peninsula there of Greece, or to simply long to go through the whole area of the Mediterranean Sea, people would come to one side or the other of Corinth. They would unload their stuff. Somebody would take it across that little three-mile strip, and then they would put it under the boat, and it would take off. And you can imagine, this was a very profitable business. I mean, there, there were businesses all over the place that would do that for you. And other people came in and started business. And because there was a lot of money there, there became a lot of finance. When you have a lot of money and a lot of finance, you have a lot of entertainment. There were the games to be played. There was theater. There was trauma. There was everything. And, of course, there was sin. It was, after all, a sea town with a lot of ships and a lot of sailors. And sailors do not change, have not changed. Those of you that are in the Navy, no offense to you. Please don't be offended at this part of the message. Maybe later, but not right now. But there was, no, that's just the way it is. And it was a religious place. I mean, back then, every city had tons of religion. Paganism was everywhere. And they had lots of gods and goddesses. But the main deity was the goddess Aphrodite to the Romans. That was Venus. And Venus was the goddess of love. And I don't mean love like, hey, I fell in love with you and everything's cool. I mean love like all the immorality that went with that. That was Corinth. 400,000 people strong. And in 51 AD, this guy named Paul, this evangelist, this apostle, this rugged, kind of <laughs> tough brilliantly minded, brilliant thinker, but rough speaking, plain speaking guy showed up in Corinth all by himself. Acts 18 tells us he had left Timothy and Silas back up in the area of Thessalonica. In chapter 17, he had headed to Athens, spent a little time there, brief time there, went on down to Corinth. And he was a Jewish, so he met up with some Jews. And he happened to meet up with the man and his wife, Aquila and Priscilla, just like him. They were Jewish, and they were also tent makers, and they were Christians like him. They had been in Rome, but had to leave Rome when Claudius kicked out all the Jews. And uh, because of the conflict over this guy named Christos, we would say is Christ. And so he began <coughs> teaching there in the synagogue. That didn't last long, because people began coming to Jesus, and the Jews didn't like it. And so Paul literally, I mean literally is the sense of literally, not literally as figuratively, but literally went next door to the synagogue. And there was a guy who lived there named Justice, and Justice was a God-fearing Jew, and he was a Gentile, and he said, Paul, come on over, we'll start the church in my house. Not only did Paul go over with Priscilla and Aquila and a few others, but the leader of the synagogue, a guy named uh, Crispus, he went too. I mean, he took, he took the leader, and they went over there. And eventually, Timothy would join him, and Silas would join him. And for a year and a half, Paul was in Sin City. 
And he started a church, and that church grew, and that church was rocking and rolling and going along great, and Paul took off because things were going well. A few years later, Paul's in Ephesus. He's getting word that there's trouble at the church in Sin City. The church is being torn apart with divisions, and strife, and problems. Over the next really brief period of time, Paul would write four letters, four letters to Corinth. We have two of them. He would make two more visits, all in an effort to get this church back on track. And the problem that was coming, what was the reason this church was being torn apart, is the secular culture, a Greco-Roman culture, with all the sin and all the vice of Sin City, was beginning to pull at the Gentile believers within the church and trying to tell them that the path of Jesus was not a path of wisdom. You see, the Gentiles love their wisdom. The right way to live. I mean, the Jews loved it too. The Jews, just, Jews had, they had their scholars. They had their scribes. Paul was one of those guys. He had kind of left the faith, according to them, because he had become a follower of Jesus. But to the Greeks, man, they, they, loved, they loved the guys who, who were great speakers and eloquent. And that was part of their culture. And the culture in Greece and the culture of the church, the Christian church, were at odds with each other. You see, here's the thing. Christianity, get this. Christianity is always counterculture. Christianity always runs counter to the culture, unless the culture is a culture of honor and glorifying God through the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what a church culture should be. But the prevailing culture outside of the church, Christianity is always going to be counter to that because that culture is not designed to honor God. That culture is not designed to share Jesus with people. So we find ourselves constantly butting heads. Now, in America the last 200 years, because America was founded on certain principles, that are Christian in worldview, we had very little conflict with that culture. That is changing. By the way, that will not change. Because our culture is moving further and further away from Christ, we will find ourselves at odds with the culture more and more and more. That's okay, because Christianity is not to embrace culture. It is to engage the culture, because we are always counter-culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wisdom was so important. And to them, it wasn't wise. It didn't make sense. Why would you follow this Jesus guy? Because here's what Jesus was doing. He was taking these Greek Christians away from their culture. I mean, back in that time, I mean, you know, everything in business was, was always connected to religion. See, it's hard for us as Americans. We don't, we separate business and religion. And, we, we, and I get that. And we do that. And that's fine. But they didn't. And, and, and religion was paganism. So if you went and you got some meat at the butcher, the meat had been sacrificed to pagan idols. If you went to a buddy's house and y'all were going to meet together, you were going to pray to the deities. You were going to have little statues of the deities. If there was a party, if there was a gathering, if there was a festival, it was always to the pagan deities. And when you gathered with these deities, you would drink and get drunk and you would have all sorts of, I'm a lot of kids here, you would have all sorts of immoral activities. We'll leave it at that. That your mind, well, don't let your mind run free. Don't do that. Just trust me. There's a lot of immorality, okay? All the stuff you block from your kids on, on the internet that they still find a way to get around. There's all there. And that was their world. And, and that's how they lived. And it didn't make sense. Why are you following this Jesus? This Jesus died on a cross. This Jesus, why would you go that way? And who was this Paul? I mean, Paul, yeah, he's smart, but Paul was kind of ugly. He wasn't eloquent. He wasn't a great speaker. He wasn't any of those things. And so the church began to be pressured. 
And ultimately, the pressure is always simply this. It's not about Jesus, because there's never really a problem. Jesus, Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus, Jesus was a great example. You know, everybody, yeah, Jesus was a good old boy. He's a good guy. The problem was always the cross. It was the problem for the Jews. It was the problem for the Gentiles. And so in verse 17, this is what Paul says. Christ did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Now, the gospel is the same thing as the cross, same thing as Jesus, the gospel message. They're synonymous. He didn't preach to me in cleverness of speech and all your fancy wisdom. He did this so that the cross of Christ would not be made void, empty. No, he says, listen, guys, this is real simple. I came to preach Jesus. I came to preach the cross. Everything is around the cross. Everything is around the Jesus. It's where it all matters. You see, back then and now, the real issue was and is the cross always. See, the centrality of the cross is at the heart of who we are and what we believe. You cannot escape it. It is who we are. We are people of the gospel, people of the cross, people of Jesus. And that's always the issue. Paul said this way. In verse 23, he said, I preach Christ crucified, preach the cross. He said, for the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And for the Gentiles, it's foolishness. Now, that, that term stumbling block is the Greek word scandal. It's, it's, it was a scandal to the Jews. The Jews could not imagine why you would think the Messiah would die on a cross. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says that anyone who died on a tree, who hung on a tree, was cursed. Now, to the Jews, the cross was a tree. Wood. The connection was wood. If you can't figure out that connection, it's because of the wood. And so, it, it, he was cursed. Jesus was cursed. Why? Why would you want a Messiah who was cursed by God? They couldn't, they couldn't get around that. And, and I understand that that makes sense. I mean, that is a huge stumbling block. It's a scandal to think that the Messiah was down on the cross. And they had trouble. that's always what they had trouble with, is getting around the cross and the resurrection. And for the Gentiles, it was just foolishness. The word foolishness comes from the Greek word moros. We get our term moron from it. The word concept of empty-headed, idiotic. And I, listen, this, it's just, it means stupid. That's what it means. And I know, I know you always tell your kids, say, the pastor said the word stupid. Well, I did, because that's what the word means. And it's stupid not to use the word stupid when stupid is what it means. That it, it just means simply moronic. Sometimes, you ever do that? Just, person's just a moron. You know, how could they be a bigger idiot? You ever do that? Or is it just me? He says that. Because usually I'm following you in my car trying to get around you when I say, <laughs> get out of the way. I just, uh, there's a little sign. I like this little sign right over here uh, on Sonoma. It's coming up right there by the state police. It's, it's, I love that sign. It says, it, it gives me my age and tells me to slow down. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I got for that. I need to slow down a little bit. I'm getting older. Yeah, I know. Ken Adcock and I just had, I'm, I'm picking, I never single people out, but you and Terry Dean over there, you guys are getting old, by the way. We're getting old. We need to slow down. So I said, 60, slow down. I said, you're right. I'm slowing down. Absolutely. And if I don't, there's a guy right behind it in a little white and black car to tell me, hey, slow down. Forgot where I was. I went off script. <laughs> For the Jews, it was foolishness because what the cross symbolized, the cross symbolized defeat. You see, the only people that would go to a cross in, in the Gentile world were people who were insurrectionists, murderers, guys who committed treason. See, even, I mean, the, this cross was such a horrible, torturous way to die 
that the Romans wouldn't even kill a Roman citizen on it unless they committed treason. You had to commit treason. And even then, some of them didn't think that was worthy of a Roman dying on a cross. And then even, even non-Romans, slaves, uh, others, if they, if they committed acts of rebellion against Rome or murder them. But other than that, no. See, when Jesus died between two thieves, they weren't, they weren't just guys who stole money. They were insurrectionists. They were, they were guys who rebelled against Rome. And so the whole thing is just, that person was just yuck. They were horrible. Why would you, why would you want to follow them? And so it was foolishness. So Paul writes, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The message, the word of the cross. New American Standard has word. New NIV has message. Uh, It comes from the Greek term logos. Logos is an important Greek term. Uh, John really makes it important in his gospel. In John 1.1, he said the uh, beginning was the word or the logos. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh in verse 14, logos. To the Jew, logos symbolized are depicted the revealing power of God. I mean, God spoke through his word and all things came into existence. So to, to speak of Lagos is to speak of God revealing himself in power and glory. To the Gentile, Lagos represented the reality of existence. And so it, whatever existed came from Lagos, reality, the wisdom concept. So when Paul says the message of the cross, he's not talking about scandal. He's not talking about foolishness. He's talking about something that God reveals, something that is reality. And then he divides those who respond to the Lagos, to the message of the cross, into two groups, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Now, the, the Greek words for perishing and being saved are written in such a way as they, speak, they depict something that's ongoing. It is a process of perishing, a process of going on and being saved. Now, I understand in all of the New Testament concept that when we're saved, we're saved forever. I get that. And we're saved from the ones perishing over to the ones being saved. But that's not what Paul's dealing with. That's true. Paul makes it, helps explain that it's true, but that's not what he's dealing with. He's saying there are basically two types of people. Always within the New Testament, there are two types of people. And he describes them as the one who are perishing or those who are being saved. Perishing comes from a word that means to be utterly destroyed. Uh, the last sermon I preached in January, John 3.16, said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that anyone who would believe in him would not perish, be destroyed. In John 10, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give to them eternal life. They shall by no means ever perish, be destroyed. It speaks of condemnation. It's the condition of the one who has rebelled against God, being saved. Is also written as an ongoing process. Both are passive. It's things that are happening to us. And so the process of being saved is the process of being rescued, delivered. It, it speaks of one who is in unbelievable danger and peril. But now they have been rescued. And now that they have been rescued, they are saved, and they continue in that saved spot. The message of the cross divides people really into the perishing and the ones being saved. And it's our response that that matters to because he's what he says. To the ones perishing, it is foolishness. It is idiotic. The idea that you would follow a guy who died on a cross is foolish. The idea that you would leave your old way of life, you would leave your family, you would leave your friends, you would leave your business, you would leave all your social contacts was foolishness. The interesting thing that Paul does as he continues after verse 18, is he flips it around and says the real foolishness is not in those who follow God, but those who reject it. You see, here's the thing we should always remember. People 
who reject God always think the gospel is foolish. To reject Christ, to reject the cross is foolishness. It's moronic. It's idiotic because you're perishing. The moronic, the foolish always think the gospel is foolish. But to those who are being saved, and that's us, Paul says, you and I, it is not just wisdom. He says that later, but it's the power. The power of God is the power of Jesus on the cross, taking our sins upon him. It is the power of the resurrection. It is the power of a life that has changed. It is the power of a life that has never experienced power before, but experiences it at the cross. That is not just wisdom. It's power, the power that only God has. So here's the thing. In Sin City, when the church is struggling, the issue really comes back to the cross. What are you going to do with the cross? Because the cross is going to take you out of the culture. You can't, you can't keep living in the culture and living in the faith. So here's the thing. Perishing and being saved are based on the rejection or acceptance of the cross that is Jesus. Whether you're in the position of perishing or being saved, it is not about wisdom. It is about the cross. Have you accepted it or rejected it? And that is the message for the culture of Sin City. That is what Paul, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, and you can read the whole book, and it always comes back to this. It comes back to the cross. It was true then, and it's true now. There's an old saying, the more things change, <laughs> the more they stay the same. And that's true today, too. See, we live, we live in a time when we, we are really sophisticated. We like to think we're far more sophisticated than anybody that lived in the first century. In, in terms of the toys and gadgets we have, that's true. I mean, you know, you got, get the cell, most of you got your cell phone there, your pad or whatever, maybe you have it out, and you're doing stuff. Hopefully, you're, you're taking notes, looking up scripture. Hopefully, you're not passing notes along. It's just how times have changed. When I was a young minister, you passed notes the old-fashioned way. You wrote it on a piece of paper, you tore it off, and you snuck it down. Now, you can just text it. In the old days, you had to sit next to each other. Pass you, you over here could not pass a note to someone over there unless it just went the chain and we were going to catch it. And when we caught you, we embarrassed you in front of everybody. But now you over here, I'm not pointing to anyone in particular. I'm just saying you in general, whoever you may be, you can just text it to them over there. It's simpler. We are so much more sophisticated. You know, we can travel, get in a plane. We can go all sorts of places. But here's the thing. When it comes to our culture, we're not any more sophisticated than they are. They were. I mean, you know, you know what they loved back then? Money. I mean, they were always pursuing money. You know what we love now? Money. Oh, we're always pursuing money. You know what they love back then? Pleasure. Oh, whatever I can do to make pleasure come to my life. You know what we like now? Pleasure. I mean, you see it everywhere. All the commercials and all that. It's just pleasure. I mean, it hasn't changed. I mean, marriage was important back then, but they still committed acts of infidelity all over the place. Marriage is important now, but the people still commit acts of infidelity. It's okay. I mean, it's the way it is. And I'll tell you something. You know what they did back You know what they had back then? That we think we just have now, and it's new, but it's always existed. They had guys that liked to dress as girls, and they had girls that liked to dress as guys. It was pretty common back then. I mean, it's, just, it's always been there. And we come to our world today, and, and, and so many things are the same. And this problem is still the same, and the problem is simply this. When it comes to Christianity, the problem isn't Jesus. Jesus himself wasn't the problem. He wasn't the problem for the Jews. He wasn't the problem for the Gentiles. He could teach her, moral man. Yeah, the problem was that cross. It was the idea of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's still that way today. People still have problems with the concept of someone dying for your sins. People still have problems with the concept of the resurrection. I mean, we got Easter coming up in, in four weeks, or three weeks, it's four weeks, yeah. 
That's great. You know, and by the way, you know, Easter, we're back. You know, we're uh, you know, everything. We're having back. Wait, we're having four services again on Easter. We'll have the 8:30 traditional this service, the 11 o'clock service. Then we're going to add the 12:15 service. You know, some of you, especially if you're watching, you like to come and you're concerned about social distancing. You don't want to come to this service because I'm looking around. You're not concerned about social distancing, obviously. 12:15 is a good service for you. But we're doing all of that. But here's what I know, and we're going to, you know, we're going to preach a message about the cross, you know, and it's in this series. But I know that there'll be people in our city, there'll be churches in our city, churches all around us, in our, you know, Senate, I mean, uh, El Paso and um, Las Cruces area, where the people preaching won't believe in the actual, literal, physical, historical cross. They'll talk about the symbolism and the power and the imagery, and, and they'll, all this stuff, this existential stuff that makes the cross sound oh so touchy-feely, and they'll deny the historical reality that Jesus died on a cross for your sins because they can't handle the cross. In fact, people, people keep trying to disassociate themselves with the cross. And they'll, they'll say things like this, that, that the resurrection of Jesus, the cross, really didn't happen. The church added that all later. They'll say, oh, the church added that later, later. The resurrection, the cross, that was always later. And they, they did it because, you know, in the, in the dying, the pagans had dying, rising gods like Mithras, and they added all that. People are always commenting about Christmas and Easter, how Christianity stole stuff from the pagans. You know, there's not one single document anywhere that ever shows that Christians stole anything from any pagan. I know that because if they were, I'd see them all the time. <laughs> well, it's not there because we didn't steal anything. Christianity fled paganism. And the interesting thing today, we have people, you know, Christianity has a big tent, really. There, there are people with inside Christianity who do not, you know, believe in the resurrection, believe in the cross, and, and they're constantly talking about that, and they're constantly talking about how Jesus, you know, and Paul were at odds. Now, now, everybody believes Paul was a real person, all right? And everybody believes Paul wrote some of his letters. Some believe he didn't write others, but everybody believes Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. It's accepted Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is dealing with the resurrection, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives the definition of the gospel, which is the same thing as the message of the cross. He says this, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. The evidence of that is he was buried. And then he was raised back to life by the power of God on the third day according to the scriptures. The evidence is that people saw him. I saw him. James saw him. Peter saw him. The apostles saw him. 500 people saw him at one time. You see, from the very beginning, within uh, Paul's ministry, Paul's ministry always focused on the resurrection. It's not something new. They didn't add that. In fact, Acts chapter 2. Paul, I mean, Peter. Luke writes about Peter. Luke's now accepted as a brilliant historian. Even non-Christians accept Luke as a historian. He writes in the second chapter, two months after the cross, Peter preaches this. He says, you crucified Jesus and God raised him from the dead. You killed him on the cross. God raised him back to life. See, the cross in the very beginning was at the heart and soul of the Christian faith. Christianity rises and falls on the cross. You've got to understand that this whole series, our whole existence, the church that is here, is here because Christianity rises and falls on the cross. We talk all the time that we're here to honor God and help people come to Jesus. We help them come to Jesus because of the cross. And even today, though, people will tell you the foolishness of the cross, the weakness of those Christians who have to put their faith in Jesus. It's It's nothing new. It goes back to the time of Paul. And as Paul begins his book that he writes to the church in Sin City, and as we begin our series, we need to understand it is not foolishness to follow the cross. It is wisdom. Because it is the cross and our response to it that separates those who are perishing from those 
who are being saved. It's not your understanding of creation. It's not your understanding of the end times. It's not whether or not you believe everything in the Old Testament. It's not that. It's not whether or not you believe everything even that's in the New Testament. It's your response to the cross. Paul ends this little section in verse 25 this way. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. You say, I think your God is foolish and you're wise. The foolishness of God, if there was any, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the cross is not foolishness. It is wisdom and power. The cross is not weakness. It's the power of God to save. Which then brings us to the question we asked to begin this series and this message. How do you respond to the cross? In your life, how have you responded to the cross? In the future, how will you respond to the cross? See, it is at the cross where we come and lay our sin. It is at the cross where we come and we take all of our doubt and our unbelief in our struggles, in our skepticism, even our ridicule, and we just put them there and walk away from them. It is at the cross where we take all of our lust and immorality, the adultery, the pornography, the debauchery, the perversions, the sexual sin of our lives, and we just nail it right there. We nail it for good. It's at the cross where we take our pride, we take the arrogance, take the anger, in the rage, and there they go, and they're taken away. It's at the cross where we come with our loneliness and our sadness, in our heartbreak, in our bitterness, in our fears and our failures, and we exchange them for mercy and grace and peace and hope and faith. It is at the cross. We come and find love. It is the cross where we find forgiveness. It is the cross where we find mercy. And it is at the cross where we find salvation. For it is at the cross we find Jesus. Not nailed there in defeat. But with victory because of the resurrection. See, it is at the cross you must come to give your life, to receive life. But if you will come to the cross, you will live. So I invite you today to come to the cross and give your life to Jesus. Father, it is not foolishness to trust you. It is to accept the power that only you have. The power over sin. The power over death. The power over our unbelief and our failure. The power to take someone who has been rebellious and to change their life all because of the cross. And all that is expected of us is to trust you with our life, to give our life to Christ. So now we come. And in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I ask that you would touch the lives of those who have never trusted Christ to be their Savior. Give them the wisdom, Father, to leave behind the foolishness of unbelief. And give them the faith they need to trust you, to trust Jesus. We invite you 
who have never trusted Christ to come and give your life to him. To come to the front and talk to one of us if you need to. To come and pray. We invite you in the name of Christ. Come to the cross. Amen and amen. Would you stand? You come.